Hello and welcome to Centre for Mental Health's podcast. I'm Thea Joshi and each episode I speak to people with experience of mental health difficulties, someone working in a specific area or a member of our team about advancing mental health equality. Today I sat down with Antonio Ferreira, the award-winning mental health activist and anti-racism campaigner, to hear about the experiences that brought him into campaigning and activism, from advising EastEnders on a mental health storyline and speaking to Prince William, to campaigning against tokenism in mental health charities. Antonio is so driven to use his own experience to make a difference, and his determination and passion is really contagious. I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. Welcome, Antonio, to our Centre for Mental Health podcast. It is a joy to have you here with us. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Oh, amazing. I mean, you've been an amazing friend to the centre, and I know that our, our paths have crossed again and again. So um, you've been involved in our Young Changemakers project. Um, and, and I know last year you worked with us as a policy intern. Um, you've been in chairing events. It goes on and on. So I'm just so delighted to actually get you on the podcast today and actually have a proper conversation with you thank you yeah no the feeling is mutual and as you've pointed out I'm a very big supporter of the centre so happy to be here happy to be speaking to you incredible so obviously you're known as like an award-winning mental health activist a campaigner you've done work in anti-racism so I kind of wanted to just take us back if you're happy to do this um to the sort of beginning of your story and would you be happy to tell us a little bit about your own experience of mental health difficulties yeah, sure. So for me, it started um, as a teenager, um, going through uh, high school, close to my GCSEs. I, you know, grew up putting a lot of pressure and expectation on myself, and as some would put, unhealthy pressure and expectation, which ultimately came from my peers, teachers, and families. Um, great um expectation of me I guess my expectation I say would be the wrong word but their ambition for me because you know I was what people call a model student I was you know completing coursework and homework on time um I was you know copying out books to improve my handwriting because my teacher had a uh, handwriting competition um you know I was in top sets for for most of my um, classes so there was a lot of I guess, yeah, you know, ambition put on me to do well and succeed. Um, But unfortunately, that got channeled into this unhealthy expectation pressure that I put on myself to have to live up to those um, ambitions people had of me. So ultimately, you know, as I was going through GCSEs and going on to college, that pressure and expectation put on myself from people's ambition became a black or white thinking of I have to do it otherwise I'm going to be nothing right I won't be accepted into society and that caused physical symptoms as well because of the stress I was putting myself under to achieve um you know I was suffering from fits and then my behavior changed and I think my behavior changing was most apparent to my um teacher and my family and you know, when they had noticed I'd become quite confrontational, I'd gotten my first detention for gross defiance. They wondered if something was up, right? And there was, I mean, there were plenty of times in between to really be, to be seen what was going on. But I, I felt now when I look back on it, I was very misunderstood because, you know, my 
um, football club would put, would brush my behaviour to anger issues. You know, maybe he's just suffering with some anger issues. So they never took it as anything mental health related. My teachers, once I had been referred to child adolescent mental health service, they were they would receive questionnaires on my behaviour in school to try to tell so that the service could try to tell what was going on. And I remember one of my teachers saying to me, "Oh, you know, I've got this." Um, questionnaire but I'm going to fill it out as perfect so you don't get involved in that system sort of thing you know which at the time seemed you know it seemed as he was trying to help me but this is why I said misunderstood because no one saw the mental health aspect of it and personally have that coming from an African culture there was no discussion of it either so you know me trying to illustrate was difficult and other people trying to pinpoint it was difficult so considering all of that going on it came to a point where, you know, I was struggling emotionally, physically, and, and so forth. And what actually happened was, because of those physical symptoms I had, um, I was referred to a neurologist, but at the same time, I was under child adolescent mental health service. And unfortunately, there was a miscommunication between my, neuro well, a miscommunication or a lack of communication, because my neurologist had prescribed me this anti-epileptic medication, to help with my physical symptoms. However, that anti-epileptic medication also had a side effect for enhancing mental health related issues. And so that's why I say a miscommunication or lack of communication between my psychiatrist and neurologist, because ultimately that medication did enhance my suicidal ideations. You know, I wasn't able to manage, cope, and I just thought the only solution was to um, attempt to end my own life. And in, in that process, you know, that's where I was put into this unspoken of territory, as I said, of uh, mental health and now having to open up on my vulnerabilities and weaknesses. To cut a long story short, um, you know, that ended up in me being going into a psychiatric unit from that mental health crisis I experienced. Um, but, you know, I, I think going into that psychiatric unit is probably what changed my life the most. You know, a lot of people ask me, how does a situation like that being section make you rather than break you? Because, you know, it's, I think for people, it's more common that that situation breaks them. And I just, you know, for me, it was accepting my mental illness first. And I, and I came to accept that through peer support. So learning of other people's experiences. And then it was about, I guess, just feeling bad for the fact that I felt so lonely in that diagnosis as a young black man and that everyone else, every other patient seemed to be quite alone as well. And to me, it was like, you know, probably again, an element of unhealthy pressure and expectation. It was me wanting to get out of there to do better, you know, to improve um, services for, for young people in, in the future and to, and to really give back to those other patients who, who gave me that peer support, you know, so I came out the psychiatric unit quite determined of course still in a in a you know a sort of bumpy road trying to um come back from um that 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 situation with my mental illness but I knew one thing for sure is that I wanted to come out study psychology because in order to change something you've got to learn more about it right you can't go into something not knowing anything about it so I wanted to come out and learn about psychology, which is what I've done, but this time at my own ambition, not at the ambition of others. And so, yeah, you know, I went back to college, got my UCAS points, went to university, 
had a little bumpy road again at university, but never gave up. And here I am today studying psychology with cognitive neuroscience at the University of Essex. Um, there's obviously a lot in between that story that I've missed out on. So I'll, you know, keep the, keep, keep the reins open for you to, to pick out any questions. I've just got to say thank you so much for sharing that um, of your own experience, of your own vulnerability. And without kind of, I, I don't want to be cliche, but it is so encouraging and so inspiring to hear, like it always is to hear about someone who's faced like real struggles with their mental health. And um, and it, as you say, like your experience on the inpatient ward and how um, that kind of changed your life and the things that you acknowledged were not good there in terms of loneliness and isolation. And it's just so encouraging to hear your story. And I'm I'm really excited about uh, all that you're doing and I'll, and I'll preparing to do in the future. It's just, it's, it's really uplifting to hear. You mentioned about your stay in the inpatient unit helping and I kind of was interested to know, you know, what, what are the things that you feel really helped you to come out the other side of that episode or previous struggles? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think I've always been quite a very analytic person, you know, and very had a strong um, sense of self-awareness. So when I was in the psychiatric unit, you know, it wasn't from the beginning I got there, I knew this is what I was going to do, this was going to happen. It took a lot of errors and and mistakes. You know, I, I first went in there quite... Well, actually, I first went in there expecting luxury. I'll tell you that, right? I was... Just, <laughs> I, whenever you think of um, hospital, I might, I just think sleeping on a bed, being looked after, and, you know, that... <laughs> but it's completely different to that. But I won't go into too much detail. That's a whole different story of what it's like in there. But what I'm trying to get is there was different stages to to it right and the beginning was this confusion and then it became this frustrated um stage to things because you were like you know you finally realize you're quite how limited you are being on section what being on section actually means but then came this point where it was like well I'm here now and I've understood all, all, all you know all the aspects of what's going on what is the solution right I I, I always tend to not focus too much on the problem and find out what the solution is, right? You know, it's, it's very simple, you know, you, for example, you're hanging out with friends or family, right? And you, I don't know, you've taken the wrong turn or you've dropped something, you know, whatever problem it is, a lot of a lot of people will tend to do is tell you what's gone wrong. But I will be the person that says, okay, well, we all clearly recognize the problem. Let's talk about the solution. You know, what can we do about it? Because there's no point hanging on to the problem and I believe that's what a lot of people unfortunately do they hang on to the problem and then that makes it a struggle for them to come into recovery so fortunately for me you know I, again I, re I recognize the problem and, and I accepted the problem and now for me it was what is that solution and so in speaking to the to other patients you know I learned that although our experiences are very subjective we still had objective parts to our stories you know we all felt depressed at a certain time we all felt anxiety at a certain time you know we all doubted ourselves at a certain time and with other people's real experiences you start to learn oh actually this is more than just boys being boys or you know teenagers being teenagers it's like there actually is something going on here that I was completely unaware of because of my upbringing right mm -hmm. and so yeah you know that conversation with them is really what helped and I believe as though they really saw that you know almost like a, a light bulb you know I I didn't have a light bulb that was off I needed switching I had 
light bulb that was simply turned off and just needed turning back on again. And they were able to do that. You know, they would at times would put aside their own struggles to support me. And on the way out, you know, they would all tell me, we don't want to see you back in here again. Like you've got so much to you. Like we want to see you changing yeah. the world. And, you know, I took that upon myself. Yeah, and I, I'm glad you you again touched on the peer support element because I think peer support's a really interesting one. Um, we've, we've done some research on it at the centre and I, I can link to that in, in different contexts. And um, obviously it's it's grown hugely and um, in the past decade, say, in NHS mental health services as a, as a kind of formal role, but equally just as, as people, peer support, you know, informal peer support, I think we're kind of like oh yeah it's good it's great you know but I think similarly when we're struggling at least for me I think you can kind of think well no one's going to understand because no one no one gets this you know and then when you have an experience where peer support is good and you talk to people and you go oh you understand this too like there's something really profound in that I think that is incredibly powerful for recovery in in my experience of kind of just going oh you get this in a way that no one else can unless you've literally lived through it yourself and and experienced it in your brain um so yeah I I wholeheartedly agree with that yeah I believe a lot of isolation and loneliness particularly in the world of mental health comes from uh the anxiety towards a conversation you know before going to psychiatry unit I never had a conversation about my mental illness or my you know my struggles but being that unit kind of forced me to have that conversation fortunately you know I believe that's also where I was able to learn how to illustrate what was going on for me um from others um, ex- um experiences so yeah 100% yeah and so I mean you kind of touched on it there but I'm just interested to know more about like when did you kind of start moving into the world of mental health activism uh, what kind of things have you been a part of um talk me through some of it I know you're you do so much I'd love to hear more yeah um how much time have we got um <laughs> i i actually got into um volunteering quite accidentally so what happened was when i came out of the psychiatric unit i said you know i was determined to learn about psychology to change psychology um i started at university of hull studying psychology with a fast track doctorate and you know when i was there i was i was part of the well-being team and so forth and had a, quite a lot of support there now I remember a, a lecturer saying you know oh the world of psychology is quite competitive you need to go out and get extra experience because you can't just rely on your um degree to get you into that in, into that field so you know being a cooperative and obedient student I listened to my lecture um, <laughs> always good <laughs> and I went off, you know, and I signed up to a local mine, which at the time was Hull in East, in mine in Hull and East Yorkshire, sorry. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I signed up, but, you know, I never really signed up to do anything. I, I just signed up to put it on paper, put it on my CV, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Get away with. Um. So, yeah, you know, I'd done that, but, and, you know, for anyone listening, if you sign up to be a volunteer, you are going to be asked to do volunteer stuff. So inevitably, I was asked to give a talk to my university about my mental health experience. Wow. But getting the context, I was never interested in doing anything. So, of course, I said no. You know, I just wanted to put my name on paper. That was it. But again, being a psychiatric unit, the main thing I learned as a human is to always try 
And then the next best thing to do is to try again. And then the third thing is to try again, you know. And after that, if you've if you've if you've done all of that, then don't sweat it. You've tried your best. You you know, just keep it moving, sort of thing. So having um also at the same time experienced a relapse, I transferred to University of Essex to be closer to uh London, where my original mental health services were from, because they are aware of my care and so and so forth, so forth. So in doing that, coming back to the transferring to University of Essex, I said to myself, you know what, I'm not going to give up at that first hurdle of volunteering. Let me just try it again, right? So I, this time I signed up, I believe, to National Mind. And I, you know, they've, again, as a volunteer, asked me to do something. So this time I said, yeah, and it was to give a talk to Mind Staff Induction Day. And I'd done it, you know, I went to this talk all suit and boot I thought it was going to be so formal I was like really excited my first time telling my story I have sweating buckets too I, I don't know if anyone <laughs> is there so was there on the first time I'd done that but yeah you know that experience really became the start of the snowball because after telling my story you know there was the feedback I received was your story is so powerful it could so it could help a lot of people you should really carry on with this right and then that was that light bulb start of the snow why you know but yeah why not went to be a major volunteer and I signed up to I say seven eight other mental health charities I've never actually attempted to name all of them because I'd end up forgetting some um but you know mainstream mainstream charity mental health charities and grassroots mental health charities I I've signed up to volunteer for I took part in my first major opportunity with time to change which was um, talking about the most the more stigmatized mental illnesses uh, I think the campaign was called the see the bigger picture I love that found my passion for you know being in media and um, working in front of a camera uh, and just you know the whole idea of um, raising awareness for mental mental health particularly within racialized communities and I believe from there you know, I just kept taking on, I kept doing opportunities, you know, kept really thriving to get my story out there. Um, and I, I, as I always mention from, particularly from a racialized point of view, racialized community point of view. Um, and I can't, I can't remember in between how much I'd done or, or what I'd done. It was a lot. Um, but I know the next big thing I'd done after that was the EastEnders opportunity with with Mind. Um, that was amazing, you know, that that came from being part of uh, Mind's um, media department, you know, they they have this, this um, department that supports stories and soaps with um, accurately portraying um, mental illness with, um, within their storyline. And so EastEnders reached out to Mind because they wanted mm. to storyline on a young black man with schizophrenia and they wanted to do it and he wanted to portray it accurately and sensitively, you know, yeah. sensationalizing. Yes, that's the word. Yes. Um, the 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 story. And so they used, they offered me as a case study. And you know, fortunately, I got to meet the, the first thing you done was I got to meet with the directors, writers, producers, um, actors to tell them my story. Wow. And I got invited on set, which I really really interesting experience and um interesting experience because I was you know touching things that weren't real they were actually part of the set and I thought they were real and you know it was really interesting but I got to also meet some more of the actors and just you know consult them on the day on 
you know what what it really means to what it, or what it looks like to be a young black man who's kids really I remember you know there was one part of the scene where they had um, the actor um Stevie playing who plays Isaac in EastEnders holding his head when he was hearing voices and he said and the producer the director came to me and he said you know what do you think of that and I said that is one of those misconstrued concepts you know when we yeah. hear it, we don't put our hands on our heads it's nothing like that and he said okay you know what we're scrapping all of that yeah just took it out you know and there were things they were doing as well to really make it realistic like um using an earpiece in the actors while talking to make it really seem like they were being disturbed by um voices so all in all is a great experience as I said interesting experience that was a you know really big opportunity for me that's probably what started my um, independent independency throughout activism yeah um and then you know carried on done a campaign I'm sure we'll, we'll get into more details about this but done done a national uh, a national campaign around eradicating tokenism from the mental health charity space that is all great um campaign and then you know more recently meeting the prince and princess of Wales on World Mental Health Day and being interviewed by them on my mental health journey to where we are now amazing that's so cool I remember one day I was watching BBC Breakfast and I was like oh that's Antonio on the big red sofa that's so exciting so um yeah, yeah you, you've got you've got a fan there in me um <laughs> but no genuinely it's really exciting and I'm I'm really encouraged to hear how you're using your story to really make an impact across things like the media and in having major conversations with like the future king it's very like very exciting so you touched there on the campaign you were doing around tokenism in mental health charities and I'd love to hear a bit more about that and also then kind of by extension what does it mean to move away from tokenism to meaningful representation and involvement of underrepresented communities? I think it starts off with defining what meaningful and genuine um, action, participation means. I think, you know, each organisation will have their own understanding of meaningful and genuine participation. And what I learned through my um, tokenism campaign is that not every tokenistic approach is done intentionally. You know, sometimes it is unintentional, but however, having that lack of awareness to it is also contributing to it, right? And so it wasn't necessarily about, it wasn't always about changing people's approach. It was also making people aware of their approach, right? And that, that was quite important. Now, if you ask me, what does meaningful and genuine mean in, in context? I probably couldn't answer that because I believe every, as a whole, there will be core beliefs, but for every organization, they will have their own method tailored to their organization, which won't be the same for all, right? When people refer to me as an expert by experience, it, it's important to know I'm an expert in my own experience, right? Yeah. I, I was diagnosed mm -hmm. with a mental illness and I do have insight into my diagnosis, but that doesn't mean I'm an expert. Everyone within that diagnosis right and so having me involved is great for my perspective to hear my perspective and to offer my perspective but one isn't enough and that sometimes comes into that tokenistic approach you know where you feel okay we've already got Antonio in this that's it we don't need anything more you know that that's enough to tick tick the box which isn't necessarily the case and then you have situations where you know some organizations will feel okay 
well, even if our, you know, members are predominantly white, let's create a group where more black people can be together. That isn't also, you know, genuine or, or, or meaningful because actually when you're, what I see the, the, the intention behind it, however, you're actually oppressing us again. You're putting us in a group of people we're already familiar with you know, who we already think alike with. So we don't really have to be teaching each other anything. You know, we need to be mixed within a group, within people of power to really create change and influence and awareness, right? You, the first, as I said, you know, when I started off, I started off with raising awareness. Then I moved on to campaigning and really getting into policy and making changes because I realized having an awareness is, alone is not enough. You know, it doesn't, that doesn't really do much so change needs to be informative and transformative not just one or the other right they need to be the two together and then we need to look at co-production and how co-production is also utilized because there's a small degree of using co-production as, as a buzzword also you know we're going to yeah we're going to co-produce together but actually when you get into it you're not really co-producing right and then also participation what does that mean you know we put a price on participation automatically assume that's enough you know we value your participation so we'll put a price on it that isn't genuine you know so there's meaningful and genuine that isn't always genuine I know it's a good attempt and this is why I say not all approach is intentionally tokenistic sometimes it's unintentional now the big thing I, I heard recently in all of this I'm trying to find the quote but I can't that's why I'm looking at my phone was that culture is actually an illusion or culture is blinding and I thought and I sat down and I thought about that and I thought how could culture be an illusion how could it be blinding and then I thought about everything else and I thought about how compassion can be blinding how insight can be blinding you know everything we, we've spoken on in terms of attempts to involve genuine and meaningful participation from paying a fee to making groups and so forth have been people's approaches towards being non-tokenistic however that has also come from culture being blinding to them realizing that actually what we're trying to do here isn't you know um, helpful isn't beneficial but we're so engrossed in culture 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 and trying to not do it in a non-tokenistic way that we're forgetting the first principle of things which is education right awareness and how do we get that education awareness by genuine and meaningfully involving those with lived experience so if you're able to start off from the simple base of learning and educating yourself on what that means, what genuine and meaningful means to your organization and to people you involve, then you can move on towards the right steps of, okay, well, how do we value that participation? How do we group that participation, right? And I also believe, um, I guess, you know, when it says one size doesn't fit all, the reason we think of one size doesn't fit all is also because of culture, right? So if you look, um, and I just found a quote. So what it was, was um, if we look at evidence-based design versus experience-based design, ultimately evidence-based design should include experience, right? But when we focus too much on evidence-based design, we stray away from experience-based design. And experience-based design will come from genuine, meaningful co-production because you use people with lived experience to influence your, your, your current practices and approaches. Now, the danger of being too evidence-based 
is that we rely on, we, we enter this fallacy of one size fits all. Whereas if we combine experience-based design, we move away from that and become more considerate towards diversity and find that there isn't a line of best fit for all of this because everyone's culture and diversity varies. But again, that comes into understanding and gaining that education awareness, but also not allowing culture to become so blinding that you forget everything else that matters in between. That was really helpful, Antonio. Thank you. Um, there's so much I want to come back on. I thought it was interesting because we've done some work recently on kind of the involvement of people with lived experience um, within mental health services. So it kind of made me start thinking about that. But it's a really interesting one, isn't it? Because as you said, you're the expert of your experience and not all experiences and so often the involvement of lived experience whether it's specifically just more generally in mental health or specifically looking at um underrepresented groups can feel really tokenistic because it's like as you said it's this kind of tick box oh have we got someone's lived experience yes check and we're all susceptible to that and we're all guilty of it to be honest I think if you work in mental health uh, in any way because it can be too easy to kind of think formulaically uh, but the reality is that so many of us who work in mental health as well also have lived experience so it's not this we kind of put this weird divide there between people who have professional experience people who have lived experience which is arguably like a false divide anyway um but yeah as you say I think it's way too easy to fall into tokenism and saying well yes that person will speak for people with lived experience and as as I know, as I'm sure you know, we can't because everyone is different. And it's kind of like, you'll say, well, I found this really helpful. And then someone else will be like, well, I didn't. Blah, blah, blah. And you kind of think, oh, OK, yeah, I'm only speaking from my own experience. Um, I also wanted to pick up um, what you were saying around that kind of um, evidence-based or experience-based. And I think that's really interesting for us as a, as a research uh, charity, as part of our stuff being research, as well as policy and campaigns. Um, because obviously we've... We, want to make sure that wherever we're kind of campaigning and calling for is based on the evidence you know that it's what's going to work but as you say the experience space within that has to be a fundamental part of that you know it fundamentally goes hand in hand and I think kind of that's what we've been seeking to do through during co-production and peer research into our um research into our evaluations you know how does this feel on the ground rather than just like yeah, using research methods that can maybe have more colonial roots and, and can 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 feel more um, imposing and even oppressive rather than kind of acknowledging and embracing lived experience as part of that. Um, we were talking a lot about your campaigns and your activism and, and part of that, I know you've got a new campaign that you are um, planning to launch and I'd really love to hear a bit more about that. You know, my next campaign, um, without giving too much, too much revealing details, is based that um yeah as you said you know advancing racial justice within mental health but it's particularly aimed at improving outcomes between the police and those um experiencing a mental health crisis we know and you probably are aware as well um, from research that a lot of people don't feel the police should be involved um in dealing with mental health crisis and you know don't feel confident in the police with dealing with mental health crisis. Um, and so my campaign isn't, you know, to, to point the finger at the police and say, you know, this is what you're doing wrong, or, you know, this is whatever, whatever. It's more saying, actually, let me be the first person to step up as a young black man with lived experience, you know, and offer you my support 
you know a lot of people talk about reaching out to those who've lived experience well I'm coming to you you know and I, I hope that the organizations that I'm aiming the campaign at will open their doors to it um but yeah as I said you know it's, it's aimed at improving those outcomes by um imperatively seeking the input of those with lived experience to change um to improve current, current practices to strengthen legislation and guidance towards policing within a mental health crisis but not just you know putting more pressure on individual police forces but also giving them the 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 confidence um, and compassion to accurately and sensitively deal with a mental health crisis you know there's always two sides to a story and I can't I don't believe I should only look at those um, I shouldn't look at it from my side, which is the side of someone with a lived experience um, I'm prone to a mental health crisis, but it should also include the, the side of the police who, you know, might feel fearful, might not feel confident to deal with mental health crisis, and that might lead to wrong, incorrect decisions or, you know, uh, um, insensitive decisions. So, you know, I don't believe an officer wakes up in the morning, goes to work and decides he's going to be awful to people with mental ill health purposely you know I wouldn't like I'd like to not believe that anyway and so it's it's about taking the pressure off the police so that they feel confident and have the right compassion to deal with mental health crises accurately by having the input of someone like myself with lived experience but also developing a solution for those with lived experience going through mental health crisis to feel confident in the police to deal with such situations um, and I guess breaking the tension between the, the two communities, you know, building the relationship again and the trust, but ultimately by emphasizing the need for lived experience and input, and then by being the first person to say, here's my hand, take it and let's walk this road together. That's so amazing. and I, I can't wait to hear more. Obviously, we will be right behind you on that because, you know, it's clear that um, really fundamental change is necessary, but that has to happen at every level. And as you say, giving people, equipping uh, people in the police with the tools to kind of understand and respond with compassion is, is critical to that. Um, and obviously I'll put in the show notes links to Antonio's various social channels. And um, yeah, please do get behind that amazing work. Um, Antonio, you continue to astound me with just the sheer amount of stuff you're doing as well as the brilliance of it. So um, I'm grateful to you for taking the time today to speak to us and um, yeah, it's just been wonderful to hear more about it. I know we could do another hour's conversation, but it's just been great to have a chat with you and, and hear more about um, your journey to this point. And so thank you. No, thank you for having me. As I've, as always, I enjoy um, being part of any work of Descent. And as you can tell, I enjoy speaking. So it's been a really great <laughs> conversation. I, I really, yeah, enjoyed it. And as you said, um, look out for the campaign, support how you can and I'm sure, you know, from here onwards, there will be big changes coming. Awesome. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. I hope listening to our conversation has inspired you in the movement for mental health equality. We rely on support to fight for change. So please give what you can at centreformentalhealth.org.uk slash donate. See you next time. <laughs>